forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. If you enjoy this podcast, whose running themes seem to be Michael Douglas films, why marriage should be abolished, and teenage girl mystics, then you can consider becoming a supporter by going to patreon.com slash public intellectual and getting all of the typical podcast Patreon things. Go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. Angela McRobbie noted that once marriage stopped being materially necessary, once women could support themselves financially and changing laws granted women autonomy, its power shifted from the legal realm to the imagination. Now we may not need marriage in order to raise children or have access to funds, but we need it to fulfill our fantasies about what our life is supposed to be. And that has a greater hold on us and it becomes harder to break away from or to create alternatives. What we imagine will make us happy or how we are supposed to live our lives creates boundaries on our lives. If we imagine small lives, we will live small lives. If we imagine that it will be marriage that will give us the emotional coherence we all crave, we will pursue that marriage, even if the reality is disappointing and even if partners are elusive. It is a form of control, but one we volunteer for and manage all on our own. The expectation of marriage, then, will keep us from imagining other ways to organize our love lives, our housing, our families, and so on. And this is true on the individual level, but also on a societal level. Part of the reason why we know how to be in a relationship and know how important that is is because all of our popular culture tells us this. It tells us how to fall in love, how to structure that love into a social conformity, how to sustain it, and how sad and lonely it is outside of it. Maybe if we had artists and writers imagining other ways of loving and living, we wouldn't all be trapped in this heteronormative couple paradigm. In Suzanne Leonard's new book, Wife, Inc., She looks at the pop culture industry based around the idea of what a wife is. From reality television to films and so on, we learn how to make ourselves into marriage material. The wife industry is enormous, but meanwhile, fewer and fewer women are marrying, and those who do are already the most privileged of the population. They have money, they are white, they are educated. Wifedom is aspirational, and its hold on popular culture has a hold on women's imagination for how they can imagine themselves and their futures. So let's talk to Suzanne Leonard about wife entertainment and reimagine radical readings of the material. So one thing I'm interested in um, in your book that you sort of talk about in, in marriage is the way that something when it loses its social or political power sort of moves it into our cultural imagination uh, in the way that fewer and fewer people are actually getting married and they're waiting longer to do it. Um, and in the same way of... Um, 
the nuclear family started to break apart in the 1980s, but suddenly all of our sitcoms are about the nuclear family and all of our movies. Um, and even in the way that we now have, you know, like very few serial killers, but we have a serial killer on every single goddamn TV show. Um, <laughs> so I just wanted to talk about kind of why this happens specifically with marriage. But if, if it's a, um, if there is a more sort of general way that this works. Yeah. So, I mean, I think marriage has always been a cultural mythology, particularly for women, right? And in some ways that hasn't changed enormously. Um, one thing I've always been really interested in is the fact that in the 1970s, you really had a kind of cultural critique of marriage that was really widespread, right? It, it was um, it was happening in kind of women's media culture writ large. So in women's magazines, like on television, in movies, in people's conversations, in consciousness raising groups, you know, and there was this way in which marriage was really getting troubled, I think, by um, by this cultural conversation. And then kind of to your point about the 1980s, you had this kind of like return of the marriage and the wedding. I actually think that the marriage of like Charles and Diana had a lot to do with reintroducing marriage as this mythologized fantasy, right? You have the prince and the princess, you know, get yeah. married and in this televised wedding um, that is such a cultural milestone um, that, you know, I mean, I was eight years old. I remember watching that wedding, you know, as a kid and the way in which sort of the allure of that story just was kind of reintroduced as uh, kind of a coveted mythology. Um, and so then you know, I think that for a long time, women's media culture has just been fascinated with kind of teaching women to want marriage. And I don't, I think that has taken different forms um, through kind of the decades in the 80s. But I think cultural texts still teach women in particular to want marriage. But something I see changing is I think women are being told to want it for slightly different reasons. Yeah, so I guess I guess the thing I don't understand is why if using the example of the Charles and Diana wedding, um, which was obviously just like Cinderella writ large, but um, why didn't the reality of that <laughs> marriage shatter the fantasy, right? I mean, we had her being interviewed about her eating disorders and suicide attempts and all, and the, you know, the political machinations behind them getting married and all this kind of stuff. So why does the fantasy win out, I guess? Well, I, you know, I think this actually has a lot to do with the televisual, right? Um, which is to say that part of the reason the fantasy lived out about Diana is because she was like a supermodel, right? Um, I mean, I just remember being fascinated by her clothes, right? And just like just the photographs of her um, and her, again, her kind of like mediatized presence. Um, and I think in some ways that vision of her as not only as a wife, but also as a mother, right? Sort of pictures of her, you know, with those boys, you know, um, you know, I remember like, you know, that classic picture of her in that blue dress holding one of those kids as she was leaving the hospital. Um, I think in some ways that's, those images trumped the reality of the eating disorders, the depression, the, the clear estrangement, you know, between the couple, um, you know, and in a way, 
I think she also so humanized marriage um, and and I think allowed a lot of women to keep a fantasy of marriage while at the same time their realities of marriage were incredibly disappointing. Right. So you could kind of keep those two things in constellation because you, you had a figure like Diana, who on one hand was really struggling, but also was gorgeous. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think she helped us negotiate something really complicated about the reality of marriage. Yeah. I mean, in the 1970s um, cultural critique, it wasn't it wasn't just sort of like a cultural questioning, although certainly that was happening in a lot of um, films and, and TV and so on. Um, but it was a real political agenda to kind of break apart um, the power of of marriage and the the involvement of the state, and that was sort of carried through, not just within sort of the feminist realms, but certainly in the queer realms um, through the AIDS crisis, um, and it just sort of dropped off of the political agenda. Um, so even if we have a sort of cultural conversation about you know, the power of marriage and the, and the question of um, the institution in some ways um, in, in today's culture. The political aspect of it of, you know, this is, this is not a romantic relationship. This is a relationship between two people in the state, right? That mm-hmm. aspect of the, of the critique has almost entirely fallen away, I think. You know, I would agree. I would agree, but I would actually have a caveat. And actually, it's something that has, in some ways, that realization propelled my entire academic career, right? This notion of why was it that there was such a political critique of marriage in the 1970s, and then it completely drops away in the 1980s, um, and heretofore, in some ways. And, you know, I I think part of that, frankly, has to do with the advent of post-feminism, right? This idea that somehow um, women were missing out by not getting married and this narrative of the sort of the time pressure of if you focus too much on your career, then you're not going to have time to find a partner and you're not going to have time to have children. And that became a much more prevailing narrative in the 1980s. And that kind of, I think, really eclipsed the political conversation that had been started in the 1970s. Um, So I think I I completely agree about your point about the politics of marriage sort of dropping out. I think, though, that that one way in which the politics of remarriage was actually reintroduced was via the gay marriage debates, Mm -hmm. because in a sense, part of the argument for gay marriage was to say, actually, hey, this is political, right? There's a host of rights and privileges that attend marriage. And, you know, you've talked about this, I know before, like, you know, visiting visitation rights in hospitals and tax breaks and the ability to, you know, leave your money to, um, to people. So I think in an interesting way, the gay marriage debate reintroduced the politics of marriage and reintroduced the notion of marriage as something that the state is involved in, in a way that was really important. And then as soon as the decision came in, it repersonalized it, right? So the Supreme Court decision is written in this language that's very much about the, in you know, this is an individual commitment between two people. And if people love each other, they should be able to, you know, to sort of live together if they want to. So in a strange way, marriage got repoliticized for like, you know, a split second. 
only to become depoliticized, in my opinion, as soon as the decision came down. Right. And it also seems like because the obligation to marry became a choice to marry, it seems like the the a lot of the political elements of marriage um, that were part of the 1970s sort of feminist critique uh, of marriage uh, kind of dropped out because then the idea became, well, you just have to find a, <laughs> you just have to negotiate housework with your partner. You just have to negotiate the, this sort of, um, uh, these sort of elements and find the best partner. And then you can divorce and you have all this freedom. And uh, it just seems like that made it harder to get around in our culture somehow. I agree. I mean, I think in some ways, one of the worst things for feminism has been this rhetoric of choice, right? That everything is a choice. Yes. And that that is the only way in which one exercises sort of feminist agendas or feels empowered is by making your choices, right? And the kind of advent of lifestyle feminism, um, I think has been really um, it, it's it's so it's such a double-edged sword because on one hand feminism is now everywhere right now suddenly everybody is a feminist it's not a dirty word to be a feminist but that's also become completely evacuated because if anybody can be a feminist then it doesn't necessarily mean anything exactly um, so I I agree I think this for me choice is so it, it's so seductive. Because who's going to tell people you don't get to choose, right? But people don't want to necessarily admit that actually their choices do have political implications. And that's a much harder conversation. That's a much, um, it's, that's a much more difficult thing to think about. Like, gee, what are the politics of my choices? And it's not just about me, right? And, and again, I would couple this with individualism, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if feminism is a, something about like a communal movement, you know, to better the lot of um, not just women, but people that are disenfranchised in all kinds of ways, sexually, um, you know, uh, uh, via, you know, age, ability, you know, all kinds of um, various status markers, it's can't just be about be about you, right? Mm-hmm. And I think to me that's part of the problem of kind of the moment we're in now is this evacuation of any sense of collectivity. Yeah, and it's um, the individual choice is so much harder to argue with just because you think you can, you have it within your control, right? So the individual thinks that they can manage it on their own um, and and find the perfect marriage and, and any. Any sort of, you know, it becomes psycho- a psychological issue rather than a sociological issue. But if you actually sort of look at the statistics of, you know, of who's getting married, who's not getting married, who's finding partners uh, to raise children with and who's not, um, it's sort of obvious, obviously political because it's already the groups that are marginalized that are having the most sort of difficulty in, in this. Um, but, you, you know, how do you how do you have an argument with, a you know, some rich white lady that she shouldn't get married just because, you know, all these other people can't? That's it becomes a um, an impossible a political argument because um, it just becomes a, you know, it's your personal problem if you can't find a partner. Well, you know, so I've been thinking a lot about this, obviously. And one way in which, which I've found to sort of repoliticize marriage, and I think this is happening now, is precisely by talking about the socioeconomics of it. You know, to your point, people are, you know, 
marriage is once again becoming simply a thing that kind of the wealthy do to consolidate their wealth and then, you know, raise their children in advantaged ways. And I think if we could think about marriage as much more of an economic arrangement, um, that that would actually help to sort of repoliticize it because it kind of lays bare what's really going on with marriages. Um, I gave a talk um, about my book um, and a, a bunch of friends of, of mine came and afterward, the number of them were married. And frankly, these are, you know, upper middle class for the most part, white educated women. Um, and a lot of them just turned to me and said, wow, I just realized, you know, I, I you know, I, I thought I married my partner, you know, because I like, you know, it was, it was for love, but really, gee, this person is also a pretty good, like, economic partner. And, oh, gee, wait, that other person I decided not to kind of hitch my future to was not such a great, the, the, you know, the financial prospects there weren't so good. And, boy, maybe I did make this decision for a lot more of an economic reason, but I didn't even think about it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think if we could start to be honest about the way in which, like, wealth, like, wealth consolidation actually is at play even if people don't think about it on a conscious level, it's totally at play. Um, and, and I think that there's this moment where it's becoming more obvious b- precisely because people of lesser means are getting married in such fewer numbers that marriage is, I think, again, becoming an issue of equality and access and class. Um, Pricing. Pr- also, because like wealth disparity in this country is getting so polarized again, right? Um, you know, we have been, you know, since the 80s also on this slope where just income stratification is staggering, right? And the divides between the have and have nots are just becoming so um, stark. So in some ways, I think that's actually the place to repoliticize marriage is to bring this economic conversation back in because that's the reality of actually what's happening statistically and sociologically. And yeah, so in the sense of that um, romantic taste is political in in some ways, or it is um, it is discriminating in these very traditional ways, right? Um, you know, when we talk about and I, I feel like this has been a cultural conversation for a while about the sort of dwindling numbers of so-called marriageable men. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's always it's always framed as a crisis for women because this is a sort of a scarce resource, like we're about to have the water wars, but it's, <laughs> but it's about marriageable men. Um, but we never really talk about what, what it's like for men to be labeled unmarriageable, uh, that's a horrible word, but um, to to be undesirable because of financial hardship and because of all of these sorts of um, other bizarre factors, um, like height, you know, you're, you're, um, in your book, you talk about this statistic that uh, a man who is 5'9 would need to add another $40,000 a year to his annual income to hold the same attraction as another who stands 5'10, which is just, um, that's, uh, that's, that's a little shocking to have it sort of written out that way. It's kind of staggering, right, to think that people, that everything about you is kind of quantifiable in an economic way, right? Your height is worth, you know, an inch is worth $40,000. Um, 
And I think it's really interesting what you're saying, too, because in some ways, I think because of the way sort of female popular culture kind of frames marriage and the, the way we sort of talk about it in American culture, women have ha- had a long a longstanding sense of kind of their value on this market, even if they didn't use sort of those terms. But I think what's interesting is as kind of most Americans' financial futures become more precarious, and particularly the way in which that is um, narrativized as a crisis for men um, who, you know, used to be the providers and whatever, it becomes clear in some ways that men were always being valued for that economic earning power, right? But you only see it now because it's it's eroding, right? So ne- it's kind of laying bare that, um, that arrangement um, that was sort of always at play, but just kind of mystified by like love and we just want to spend our lives together. And, uh, you know, I think in some ways something interesting and it's very dark what's getting revealed, yeah. I think, about the way these things operate. But I, I again, I, I, I'm not a complete cynic, but I, I think it's actually really important that we do realize that, yeah, that's how people are being measured against one another. Um, and I don't want, I don't want to get like um, <laughs> too distracted by um, a conversation about the sort of incel uh Boy, conversation. Um, but it does seem like the think pieces that have come out in response to the incel attacks mm-hmm. um, have not advanced the conversation at all, right? So, um, you know, there were several pieces coming out in sort of high pro- profile uh, publications. The primary argument being there's no such thing as a as a sexual marketplace. Women aren't um, they're not objects. Uh, they're not uh, you know men are treating feel entitled to access to women's bodies and and as if women were coming to relationships and to the prospect of marriage in a pure purely romantic state mm-hmm. where uh, they would definitely fall in love with a poor man if he had if you know, if if that was just who she fell in love with. And I think that that's a really um, stupid place for this conversation to go and maybe dangerous for us to romanticize women's romantic intentions and treat men as they as if they were purely um, um, not predatory, but uh, definitely coming from a sense of entitlement or from a sense of trying to attain status. Yeah. Can you, can you say just a little bit more? Because I'm I'm thinking that this is problematic in a number of ways. But I guess my question is, are you thinking of this as particularly problematic because of the way it's framing sort of women's sexual desire or the way it's framing men's sexual desire or both? It's both. Um, I think that part of it is... Um, in feminist culture as it exists right now, there is a tendency to overcorrect. So a desire to, because women have been sort of demonized in the past um, and sort of portrayed as, uh, you know, in, in, the, in these very sort of stereotypical ways, um, to try to overcorrect by um, only presenting women as uh, pure or or perfect or with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, and also 
the I don't know well what the com the part of the conversation about men is I don't know if the if the conversation that men are uh, feel entitled to women's bodies is necessarily helpful, but maybe we can start with the the women's the women's intentions first. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there is something really tricky and complicated going on with the way in which choice feminism and kind of this empowerment. Uh, uh, kind of um, dovetails with this conversation because on one hand, yes, women have had to sort of pretend to sort of be kind of pure and perfect, but they're also, I think as part of the choice feminism piece we've been talking about is been that there's been this real sense that like, it's okay for women to want sex and that like sexual desire is, is like healthy and normal and that women are in a sense entitled to their sexual choices and that they necessarily, they shouldn't sort of have to apologize kind of for those desires. Right. And, and again, it's nothing to be ashamed of, et cetera. In some ways, what I see happening with this current conversation, though, is this backlash against this idea. So these men are saying, well, wait, you, you know, you're also empowered, but your empowerment is disempowering me, right? Because you don't <laughs> want to speak with me. So I always feel like with conversations about men and women in popular culture, it's always this zero sum game, like they're losing because women are winning. Right. So in that kind of in that conversation and in that economy, it's very much being framed by these men like these women are winning because they can sleep with whoever they want and they don't want to sleep with me and I'm losing. So it, it puts this like adversarial relationship <laughs> Like it, it makes sort of a sexual economy an adversarial relationship, and that I find very scary. Yeah, but I, you know, women also um, certainly women who exist in the world also have problems getting uh, married and laid and all sorts right. of things, and they <laughs> they somehow get left out of the conversation because they're not either because they're not murdering people. <laughs> Um, in, in these sort of high profile ways or, um, you know, I think it's a really sort of uh, stupid idea in our culture that women uh, grant or deny access to sex. And I and I do think that um, um, that's part of the, the uh, misogynistic uh, le uh, conversation. The language of it uh, is that, you know, um, all women could could just get laid anytime they wanted to. All they have to do is want it. Um, which is weirdly advice I've gotten from my male friends in the past when I was lonely. I would just have to want it. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I love what you're saying because I always felt that too, like this notion that like, no, like women don't have that kind of, at least not the women I know or myself, like <laughs> that kind of agency, right? Right. Yes. Yes. Again, I think it's this power, you know, I think it's this obsession with who has power. And then, uh, you know, again, I'm just struck so much with this Intel stuff um, uh, about the lack of power, right? That this perception of the lack of power on the part of men and, and that part of the mythology then becomes that women have all this power, to your point. So this would be, I think, a good time to transition the conversation to Michael Douglas. <laughs> um, That's a fabulous segue, I must say. <laughs> thank you. Um, 
we did so we've done we've done two episodes of this podcast about Michael Douglas films and uh about how he has come to represent the um the 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 new archetype of of the sort of per- persecuted straight white man and even in disclosure you know he sort of screams out at, at one point in a fight with his wife you know I'll be the straight white men man you're all screaming about all the time um, or something like that but um, but you wrote a book about fatal attraction and we have yet to discuss fatal attraction on this podcast so I didn't want to talk about it <laughs> just a bit. Great. <laughs> Um, so how did you how did you come to write about it, and what interests you about that movie is probably a good place to start. Sure, uh, you know, so in some ways, Michael Douglas is the least interesting thing to me about that movie, um, <laughs> because what I'm so interested in in that movie is the way that it set up this desperate single woman, you know, this lonely, desperate single woman living in the city in the 1980s, who, you know, at 36, basically feels like her life, you know, it's her last chance to have a baby. You know, she says like, this may be my very last chance. And the way in which that figure of the desperate, ambitious working woman became a rebuke basically to feminism, I think, and to feminist agendas. Um, And I just think that the way in which her, the lore, like the lore of Alex Forrest, the bunny boiler, um, just became every woman's nightmare, like every heterosexual feminist, ambitious woman's nightmare. Like you don't, you don't want to be that Right. Um, And the way it just haunts kind of it just haunts the psyches. I think it was made to haunt the psyches of many a heterosexual woman in the 1980s, you know, through through the present, Um, because that is just the you know, that is just what 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 women don't want to be. And it, of course, plays on this. It plays on this really, I think, important insecurity, which is that if if culture continues to romanticize marriage, which as we've, I think, pointed out, it really does, that becomes your worst nightmare is to like not get it, right? And that mm-hmm. marriage continues to be like the, the sort of be all and end all of people's lives. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was, um, I was attempting today to see if I could come up with a radical reading of Fatal Attraction. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like if I could use it as radical feminist propaganda, and uh, this is so this is what I came up with. Um, <laughs> um, basically, so my my version of it, in order to be able to watch it uh, the, the the way I rewrote it in my head, um, is that it's a movie about the way uh, single women are isolated and locked out of the privileges of uh, the the domestic, not only the domestic sphere, but the uh, the the rights that come within marriage and how that can create instability in a person. Um, and it's also about the way that the the wife who has these privileges will protect those privileges by by murdering, <laughs> you know, the, the woman who tries to intrude on them. Um, and the the sort of how the scarce resource of the so-called marriageable man creates this sort of um, violent competition and that uh, Alex's isolation um, that she she doesn't seem to have any friends or family despite the fact that she seems to be having this sort of high profile job um, is uh, part of the mainstream feminist lie 
that uh, all the satisfaction you need in life is to just become men, which is part of that sort of 80s ambitious feminist thing of just like, we'll just be like men and then you'll be happy. But that turns out not, not necessarily to be true. So that that's my uh, radical rewriting of uh, Fatal Attraction. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. I Thank love you. I love that because I think the film does do all those things, right? Mm-hmm. It does yeah. show all those things. And also, I would add, since I'm sort of obsessed with economics, you know, the wife who has all those privileges also gets to have this, like, beautiful new house. And, or not new house, it's, of course, a restored, right, old house, right, mm-hmm. in the suburbs of New York City. And the way in which part of the resources that are being protected are not just the man, it's the family and it's the, all the accoutrements of sort of family life, you know, and I think the problem of court, and again, I love your reading. The problem is because you so, you know, because the movie so invites you to sort of side with the wife killer. Right. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Once again, righteousness seems to be on the side of the woman who of course would like you know murder another woman to kind of save this man and this house essentially right so i think you're right the film raises all of these issues about the isolation of of single women and there are moments and they're like they're few and far between but there are really moments when you know alex is like looking in the window of their house and just like the literal like barrier between her and this scene where like they've just brought the bunny home and it's like all like you know softly lit and she's looking in and they're having this perfect kind of family moment and it's just so clear how distant that narrative is from her life and then she throws up right and yeah and I, and I and I I find that moment so poignant because I do think that encapsulates exactly what you're saying about that about that isolation and the denial of access to those privileges. Of course then the problem is the movie completely vilifies her and makes her a crazy person. Yeah, but there did seem to be the the sort of era of the you know, um the nuclear family under attack by the outside woman. I mean, you know, I'm also thinking of sort of like the hand that rocks the cradle and so on. Um mm-hmm of the intruding woman who has to be sort of met with violence and often by the wife herself, um, like to protect her marriage, which is, you know, in a lot, you know, in of course all of these sort of films from the era, um, the wife, her sole basis of income is through her husband. So she's not only protecting, you know, her love, but her property um, and her access to funds. So, uh, so the stakes are even higher. I that is so right. I think that is so right. Right. And and yet it lays bare this kind of murderous impulse to protect, you know, your access to resources. But then because the people that are getting kind of expelled from the narrative are so unlikable, it naturalizes and it re-naturalizes the desire for the house, the kid, the home, right? It just basically says like, yes, it's okay that of course, you know, women want these things. And of course you should kill to protect it because Mm -hmm. that is the soul, you know, like center of your being. Yeah, I mean, you use the example um, in the book of that the episode in The Good Wife where the mistress is sort of um, come, you know, uh, Peter Florick, uh, his mistress is coming forward with stories and and sort of threatening 
um, uh, the wife's reputation and ability to do her job. And so Peter Florek essentially threatens the mistress's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, you know, that was sort of uh, hailed as a feminist show. And that was only a couple of years ago. Um, and the mistress is, is totally depicted as a, just like a crazy lunatic. Um, and a prostitute, so of course it has that that sort of shame um, aspect to it as well. Um, and yeah, and that show is, is sort of heralded as uh, as you know good for women or having a sort of feminist message for its audience. Well, and it's at the behest of Alicia that he threatens right. Her. Right. Like Alicia says, make it stop. And, you know, I think what's interesting about that show in particular is the way in which she became like she became an increasingly unsympathetic character. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny that moment that you're talking about that wasn't like, I think that was in the first season. Mm-hmm. But there are hints there are kind of hints of her kind of own mercenary attitudes, right? Which is like, this woman is making her life hell and she wants it to stop. And if that means like, you know, threatening the prostitute's life, like she doesn't care. And I think in some ways, that's the thing that never gets talked about in those in these shows. It's the like underlying violence that is like a lot closer to the surface than we ever account for in the life of the like a good wife, right? In the mm-hmm. in wife and fatal attraction, in the good wife and the titular show, you know, that to me, the most interesting narratives are the ones that show how like not so deeply buried that those kind of violent impulses are. And it's not just that it was sort of Alicia's idea um, and then Peter Florek did it. But after he does do it and Alicia finds out, she kisses him for the first time since she found out that he cheated, right? Like, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's seen as a romantic gesture that he would threaten to kill uh, the, the woman who uh, essentially you know, broke up their marriage or whatever. Right. And it is then rewarded, not just with a kiss, but with a sort of sexual, you know, this kind of implication of a reinstigation, a possible reinstigation of their sexual relationship, Alicia and Peter's. Right. So we're mixing sort of sex and violence, you know, and and desire. Right. In all of these, I think, really complicated ways. And you talk a lot about um, sort of the reality programming of uh, the the wife in in our uh, in, like on shows like The Bachelor and The Real Housewives and all these things and I honestly I don't I could, I've been able to watch maybe three minutes of anything without having a Alex like reaction of vomit um, I, um, I I I honestly don't see the appeal um, so I guess my first question is uh, did, were you watching these shows by choice or did you also have to take some Dramamine um, in order to get through them? You know, I, I would say probably the latter, frankly. I, mean, like, <laughs> I don't like those shows. Either. I, I really, I mean, I don't, I like, don't like the way they depict women. But one thing I try to be really cautious about is a lot of women do, right? A lot of women do like these shows. And so I was listening to like this sort of NPR show about The Bachelor a couple months ago and just caller after caller kept saying like, you know, calling in and being like, I don't watch the show, but it's just so gross the way it portrays women. And, you know, and it's just vile and it's just disgusting. And I felt like, you know what? One of the things that I 
feel like I want to do as a feminist is think about what is it that women like? What is it that women watch? What is it that women read? And try to figure out like, okay, where's the pleasure in that? So in my own pleasure, and again, this is sort of something I can, I think I can often do as an academic is like, I watch something to study it. I don't actually watch something to enjoy it. So I don't enjoy watching The Bachelor, but I find it fascinating kind of what's going on in The Bachelor, like the way in which they have to talk about how they're they're feeling and their emotions. And I'm also kind of fascinated by why other people watch The Bachelor. Like, that's really interesting to me, um, what it is that women get uh, by watching basically the same show, like, you know, season after season and hearing the same, like, pat, trite lines. So it's true. There's been, like, 21 seasons of The Bachelor. I probably watched, like two of them, three of them, maybe, you know, to write the book. And I do feel confident, like, okay, I think I got it. You know, like, I don't think I needed to watch 21 seasons to make the claim that I'm making. And, you know, maybe some other people would think that that's like shoddy research, but <laughs> I, was like, I got it. You know, I, I, I can do this, but I, I am, I am suspicious of that knee jerk dismissal of these shows because the reality is they're, they're incredibly popular. So what is the, appeal I guess um because it it is something that I still don't understand so I think I think um the shows have sort of different appeals I think for something like The Bachelor which I was just talking about part of the appeal is much like a soap opera for me which is kind of the the way it looks like the dresses, the clothes, the locations that people go to you know it's sort of like it's this like fantasy movie, right? About like people trying to fall in love with all of the kind of ugliness and reality of competition and disappointment and sorrow. I mean, it's honestly not unlike the Diana story that I was talking, you know, that we were talking about at the very beginning of this, this conversation, right? It's both all of the things that are supposed to be so perfect about um, falling in love with all of the dirty undersides being revealed at the same time. And those are equally pleasurable, I think, for, for a lot of people. Right. And I, you know, in some ways I would argue the same thing about the real housewives. It's all these people who have more money than they know what to do with, who I'm sorry um, to say this, but I just think are like despicable people. The majority of them, you know, I I think women are just reprehensible. Um, But, you know, you get access to their world. Right. So there's this kind of, you know, this this way in which much like Us Weekly gives you access to kind of celebrity culture, Real Housewives does a version of that too. I mean, there's this one episode that I kind of love that where Camille Grammer's marriage is breaking up and she goes to New York City to um, be with Kelsey Grammer at the Tony's, I guess it is. Um, And he, and she shows up and the doorman's like, well, you're not Mrs. Grammer because basically there had been another woman who like had been like living there with him. And she says this all on camera. And then you actually see the two of them in the limo, like going to the Tony's and they're miserable. And then they decide to get divorced or he basically says he's leaving her like directly afterwards. And she talks all about this. And I have to say something that I've just always been fascinated by is like the reality of people's relationships, like what's really going on between particularly couples have always been um, my thing. And in fact, I have this like fantasy that in another life, I would be a marriage therapist because I love just talking about like what their marriage problems are. Like, I love it. I really love it. Um, And in some ways, 
for like for me anyway, some of the pleasure in those Real Housewives shows is exactly that. It's it's watching people allow access to things and that you just normally don't get to see outside of the confines of your like intimate family and friends. And it seems like the or the message that I was taking from the uh, the sort of matchmaker versions of these reality shows is that in order to make yourself, you know, mar- marriage material as a woman, um, the best thing you can do is just to flatten anything interesting or unique about you, right? Or if there is anything unique about you, it has to be in these very specific um, kind of consumerist ways of, uh, you know, you can't be ambitious, you can't be um, brilliant or, or really even good at your job um, but you can like ballroom dancing and that makes you interesting as a person, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I mean, it's it's the most anodyne stuff, right? Like, uh, you know, I like sushi. Um, but the other thing that I thought was really interesting when I was doing this research, particularly about like online dating, is you also need to basically like give good data for advertisers, right? So. Yeah. You know, part of the reason that you're being encouraged to say, like, I like sushi versus I like seafood is that sushi is much more particularized. Right. And Mm -hmm. I've been kind of fascinated by the way that, you know, um, social media in general asks us to define our identities via our taste cultures. So Mm -hmm. kind of like what movies I watch or what books I read or what food I eat, what clothes I wear become the question of who I am. And online dating, I think, really invites that. It invites you to define yourself via product consumption. And that I find really scary. Yeah, because it is sort of about, you know, well, are you a Harry Potter person or a Hunger Games person? <laughs> and yes. and that has sort of real world implications, because if you don't like Harry Potter, you are a Harry Potter person's enemy in some ways. Like <laughs> yes. they will really take it personally and get angry with you if you don't like Harry Potter. So like and sometimes it, it says something fundamental about your personality. I, I hope this isn't too much of a tangent, but I was just in conversation with a friend last night and she was telling me that uh like she read this story about a couple that basically divorced because like they had a different they felt very differently about the frozen song Let It Go, right? <laughs> it was about female <laughs> empowerment. And I was like, okay, that couldn't have been all that was going on. But like somehow the way one responds to a consumer, again, of this, you know, Disney movie becomes this tell about every Thing that they are and will ever be enough to like be the basis on which to like start or end a marriage. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, we talked about this in a past episode um, with Pankaj Mishra about how Obama's um, cultural taste became a replacement for any sort of character. Like he was, he was sort of beloved by the literary um, crowds because he, he too read, you know, fucking Colson Whitehead or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and it sort of charmed everybody into not noticing that his his policies were a fucking nightmare. Um but uh but yeah it, it taste has become it has been our replacement for just like how are you as a person? It, we I I yeah and this is one of those things where like I don't know how to solve that or even talk about it because it's so enormous um or what the origin of it is but it is crazy and also in this podcast because I announced I don't I I can't stand to watch the bachelor or bachelorette like I will obviously never find a romantic partner because <laughs> cuz I don't like the right things 
I mean, it becomes funny, like the, I would say it was sort of the reverse of that, which is just the advice, like, well, if you just like the right things, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you just like the right things, you know, if that is your intention. And I think in some ways, that's another sort of pleasure for people that might be seeking a partner, right? Or might be feeling like, you know, lonely and might want to know how to navigate a difficult, um, you know, interpersonal um, kind of landscape, right? Because, you know, in some ways, again, this goes back to what we were talking about before, this mythology that women have all this choice and if they want to get laid, they can just get laid, right? In some ways, these shows and a lot of these books and stuff are sort of teaching women, okay, well, if this is how you're going to do it, right? Here's, I'm going to give you something to like um, kind of anchor you and in your search to navigate what is in fact this completely amorphous thing, you know, finding somebody, if you were looking for a long-term, you know, relationship or, you know, finding somebody that you click with, that you have sexual chemistry with, like there's not a formula for that. And there's a lot of luck that goes um, along with that, but you can't sell that. Yeah. And it does seem like we believe that women have sexual agency, but men have romantic agency, that men are always in the position of being able to choose and women are never in that position to be able to choose romantically. Um, so women are constantly sort of like auditioning. Um, yeah, but the, the I guess, you know, men of a certain of a certain amount of money, having a certain amount of money and power, and obviously uh, that comes into it. But the idea that women have so little agency to make decisions except about their own selves, to change their selves, right? Or the way that they present themselves or um, talk about themselves or, you know, write their dating uh, profiles and so on. So it just becomes a sort of this endless internal um, inventory of making yourself, um, uh, positioning yourself better on the sort of romantic market. I love what you just said. I think that is spot on um, because it, and it comes back to what we were talking about with this idea of the individual, right? The only thing you can do is work on the self, right? As you said, do these kind of inventories and, you know, and it's not just, you know, a physical thing, but it's an emotional thing. You have to feel a certain way, you know, to make yourself marketable. You have, you know, not only do you have to eat a certain food or like, you know, racquetball, but again, you have to have like a literally um, a lexicon of, of emotions. Like you feel certain ways about certain things. And, and I, I think your point there about women having sexual agency, but men having romantic agency is really genius. I like that a lot. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, um, but but I like that a lot. And and I also think you're spot on about the fact that it all just comes down to the self. That that's the only thing because you have so there's no you can't control anything else, right? Partially mm -hmm. again because these economies are so much just based on like the happenstance of of again clicking with somebody. <laughs> Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original Dog. podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe Dog. to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.